Yes, Buck fans, this is the podcast that takes you back through all the best games, moments, and players in the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is the BuckPower.com podcast. Now, here's the unofficial team historian and your host from BuckPower.com, it's Paul Stewart. May I say that we're here for one reason and one reason only. That's to bring the fans great professional football. The first choice in the first round by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Leroy Selman, defensive end, Oklahoma. And so as those losses mounted up and kept mounting up, football wasn't fun. Well, we didn't block him, but we made up for it by not tackling. He was probably frustrated, you know, coming from SC, powerhouse. Now you can't win a game. There have been some great Buccaneer teams over the years. 2002, a Super Bowl. 2020, another Super Bowl. Many playoff teams and division titles. But when it comes to the worst, the most infamous Buccaneer team, you have to go back to the very first one, the winless Bucks of 1976. Now, everyone knows they lost every game. NFL Films have twice revisited their coverage. So this podcast is not going to rehash the games or the scores. We're going to tell you why it happened, dispunk some of the myths surrounding that team, and tell you some of the other stories about those 76 Buccaneers. And there is no one better to join me on this tale of 76 than Dennis Crawford, who has written extensively about the early years of Buccaneer football. Uh, thank you for having me here, Paul. Anytime I have a chance to talk about the orange and white era, I'm very excited. But the orange and white era, though, sometimes we look back and think of 79 and 81 division titles and 82 and Doug Williams and Ricky Bell. We're going back before that to the white and orange because they never wore orange shirts in that first season which is a sartorial error of epic proportions because the old white with orange numerals was one of the duller uh, uniform schemes in NFL history, I thought. Great helmet, but they really inverted what would have worked. And it, it's apparent and it's appropriate because the 76 bucks, they were the first, you never forget your first time, but they were also dreadfully dull. So I don't know how lovable of a loser they were, during that first season. They became a little bit more lovable in 77 as the streak continued, but that that vanilla look perfectly encapsulated their offense during the expansion year. And just to explain, the reason the Bucks had orange numbers only that first year is because they, they couldn't see them from the press box and they changed them for the 77 season to the more red and orange that you see later on. Now, the Bucks did wear orange jerseys for their first pre-season home game against Miami. And one of the great trivia things is John McKay's son, J.K., was the very first player in introduced. And he's always made a big thing of that, that he was the first player introduced to the crowd in Tampa. Uh, and NFL Films had that great, great clip of Hugh Culverhouse in his suit coming out and saying, we're here for one reason and one reason only, and that's to bring winning football to Tampa. That rants along the lines from Star Wars, where Obi-Wan Kenobi says only stormtroopers can shoot that accurately. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could get into Culverhouse. I mean, I think you've done a book about him at some point in the past, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't I, I think if I remember right, he was not wearing his famous orange blazer during that either. So that was another sartorial travesty is that he didn't break out the orange blazer sooner. 
1976, there was no free agency in the NFL. All the Bucks and Seahawks had was the regular NFL draft, albeit with some extra selections. And they had an expansion draft where they would obtain their first 39 players. Well, the expansion draft in that era was set up for everybody to fail. Uh, there was... You have to think that expansion in the NFL is all about money. Going back to when the Dallas Cowboys were in, in 1960, you had the Vikings in 61, the Saints, I believe in 66 or 67, they paid an expansion fee. So all of the owners in the NFL got money from Hugh Culver House for the right to have this team. And to stock the team, the other 26 NFL teams at that time opened up the bottom halves of their rosters for the Seahawks and the Bucks to select. So not only do you have to pay an egregious amount of money to join the NFL, you get to stock it with the castoffs from the other established teams. So from March 30th to 31st of 1976, the Bucks and Seahawks were allowed to select 39 players from these 26 teams. So every team had to keep, I believe, two players, two to three players available for the expansion draft. And when you're selecting the, basically the goodwill and salvation army equivalent of football players, you're not going to get a lot of talent. But I do think out of all of the players that the Bucks took, they did find some legitimate good players. Dave Revis uh, was their left tackle for, I think, 10 years. You know, he had played on back-to-back Super Bowl champions with the Pittsburgh Steelers, but never really started for them. So he was expendable. He was a defensive lineman for the Steelers because I remember talking to him and, and when he got the phone call, they said, oh, we want you to play offensive tackle. And Dave said, are you sure you've drafted the right guy? I play defense. They said, no, not in Tampa. Um, but then you also get some other players that, you know, contributed for more than one year. You had Anthony Davis, even though he fled to Canada for a year, you got Mark Cotney from the Houston Oilers. Captain Crunch had a nice decade. Uh, with the Buccaneers. Lewis Carter was not really a star running back that first year, but he seemed to be a competent professional running back. But then you, you know, you also get people like Morris Legrand um, and Steve Colavito. And it's like, you know, who? They did the best they could. I think they did a much better job than the Seahawks did. Although the Seahawks did end up getting, I don't think Steve Largent came for the expansion draft, but the Seahawks also had a Hall of Famer on their initial roster as well. Now, of course, there was a coin toss done where either the Bucks or Seattle, one would get the first pick in the expansion draft and one would get the first pick in the NFL draft. I'm really, really glad the Bucks lost that coin toss because the Seattle took a defensive tackle, Steve Niehorse. The Bucks yeah. ended up with someone called Leroy Selman. Let me just think who won that coin toss. Well, and then the Bucks also were able to get a few you know, other players. They, they, they uh, flipped some of these expansion picks you know how they got Spurrier, but they also ended up getting Richard Batman Wood, uh, who was a veteran with the New York Jets. He wasn't through the expansion draft, but he was a trade. Batman had a wonderful career in Tampa as well. So the one thing I don't think uh, the Buccaneers get enough credit for, lost in the 0-26, is that between McKay and Ron Wolf, even though they could not stand each other, it seems, they did get some good quality. It was just very rough quality for that first year. And they drafted, their, in the expansion draft, brought the first ever Buccaneer Pro Bowler. Oh, yeah. Dave Pear, uh, the nose tackle, was also a, quite a find. Now, one of the great stories from that expansion draft was the other NFL teams took 
the chance to really stitch up the Bucks and the Seahawks, and none worse than Don Shula and the Miami Dolphins. Now, they had a linebacker, Doug Swift, who'd been a starter on their, you know, undefeated team, and he had told Shula he was going to quit football and go and study medicine at, I think it was Amherst College. Now, Shula knew that, put Swift's name on the expansion draft list, which was only given to the Bucks and the Seahawks 24 hours before the process started, the Bucks took one look and thought, wow, this guy's a you know a five-year starter. They drafted Swift while the Dolphins stood there laughing. And of course, he went to college and never played in federal football again. Thanks, Don Shula. Well, you know, I always I always laugh about Don Shula because he was the head coach of the Dolphins, but I think he was also chairman of the competition committee. And I just never understood that conflict of interest. The first choice in the first round by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Leroy Selman, defensive end, Oklahoma. I don't think there will ever be a better pick in franchise history than the very first one, Leroy Selman. So April the 8th, 1976, was a truly memorable day for the franchise. Well, I know you want to talk about Leroy because I know he's one of your all-time favorites, but what I want to talk about is just, once again, giving credit to McKay and Wolf they actually had a very solid draft. They got a lot of what Mel Kuyper would say now, value in their picks. Um, in addition to Leroy Selman, they get his brother Dewey in the second round. Uh, they also get starters for multiple years. They get Steve Wilson, who was their center for 10 years in the fifth round. Curtis Jordan, uh, who played five, six years before he went to the Redskins or sorry, commanders. He was a sixth round pick. They got Parnell Dickinson, who started some of the expansion year in the seventh round. They got uh, George Ragsdale. Uh, so a lot of people may not remember him, but he was another solid special teamer and utility back. He's in the 12th round, because this is the thing that a lot of people don't realize now. Today, I think the NFL draft is only seven rounds. This draft, the Buccaneers drafted somebody in the 17th round, you know, Jack Barry out of Washington and Lee, um, which has a wonderful football reputation, I'm sure. But 17 rounds in that time. So it, once again, they get value. A couple of those late rounds actually brought a couple of interesting names. In the, the, in the 16th round, the Bucs took a linebacker from Clemson called Tom West, who never made a team never played pro football, and went on to become a very successful head coach by the name of Tommy West. Coached at Clemson for many years, had a long, long career. There was another pick in the 13th round, a tight end called Brad Jenkins out of Nebraska. Never even turned up to camp because he announced he wanted to go into the ministry. Maybe he had a higher calling from a very early time. Well, you know, the Bucks probably could have used a minister. Uh, during that first season. I always remember, I mean, when you bring up Leroy Selman, of course, you and I met him in London in 2009. And uh, that was a lovely conversation three of us were having. Quite, a, yeah. quite amazing, great memory. Um, yeah, I still cannot believe it's been more than a decade since he was taken from us. Um, not to go off on a tangent and make this about me, I, I'll just say that he was one of the first people I ever interviewed. And he set me at he set me at ease because I was so nervous. I met him at his office on USF's campus and my eyes must have been as big as saucers. And he just calmed me down very politely and made me feel like I could do this job. 
This is the BuckPower.com Podcast Network. The NFL season in 1976 was 14 games, but there was an expectation to move to 16 by the 1978 season. For their first two seasons, the Bucks and Seahawks played a strange schedule. So the way they set it up was that they wanted Seattle and Tampa Bay to have the opportunity to play all 26 existing NFL teams. So the first year of the Buccaneers, they were actually in the AFC West. That was the division they were in. Seattle was in the NFC. So in year one, Tampa Bay played nothing but AFC opponents. They played all 13 AFC teams plus the expansion bowl against Seattle. And because that game was at home, the NBC television network broadcast it. So the Buccaneers were on NBC the entire 14 games of 1976. And NBC famously did a horrible job of keeping their game tapes. That's why uh, the 1979 monsoon game against Kansas City is nowhere to be found, or the infamous 1983 Repus Bowl against the Houston Oilers cannot be found. Yeah, and also you can throw in the, the holy grail of games, the 84 game against the Jets, where McKay ordered his defense to score. Yeah, it it is so frustrating that the NBC who had those rights, whenever the AFC team came into Tampa, NBC would cover the games. So the very few games I am missing in Buck history are all usually the NBC ones. And it is, I've got nothing from the expansion 76 season. Now I've even worked with NFL films the Bucks front office have tried to get involved. There is no full game footage anywhere of the 76 season and whatever is available I have on buckpower.com as short highlight clips I have everything there is nothing else and it's so frustrating to me yeah and even the local NBC affiliate at the time WFLA probably doesn't have anything because I think all seven home games were blacked out because while a lot of fans went to the games they didn't sell out Tampa Stadium but I would just love to have watched a game of the 76 Buccaneers because I know, you know, how many of the players would love to see clips of them in action, you know, albeit 47 years later. But it is, it, it's just one of those frustrating things. They'll never become available now. They've gone forever. Okay, some of the players on that first year, Dennis, are just amazing. Now, everyone knows Steve Spurrier and, and he's, you know, one or two of the other players that we've mentioned who were draft picks and went on to long careers. But you've also got a quarterback named Larry Lawrence, who only played in one game, went over five. Well, he, he actually did complete two passes, both to the San Diego Chargers. He then had a heart transplant later in his life. Once again, showing that football is a very, very small part of many people's lives, even those who were fortunate enough. It, what's funny is I think you and I would actually give up one of our kidneys to have Larry Lawrence's stat line. I would, I would have died a happy man knowing that I had played in one NFL game as much as we love the sport. But what's amazing is that San Diego game, that was the first game that the Bucs played in Tampa, well, first regular season game at Tampa Stadium. They were shut out 23-0. It was their second consecutive shutout. It was also the final game in the illustrious Buccaneer career of Mira Roeder. And Mira Roeder had three opportunities in those first three games to go down in history as the first Buccaneer to score an official point. He whiffed all three times and, and was cut. Vince Kendrick had the first carry, and it was his only carry. 
One carry for three <laughs> yards, never carried the ball for the Bucks again. Someone who wasn't playing was Isaac Hagins, who, who was a kick returner who got injured in the preseason. He'd had two kickoff returns for a touchdown in the preseason. If only Buck fans had known it would be 31 years before Michael Spurlock would do it officially. Was, was it against the Dolphins? I think it, I think it was one of them was against Miami, yeah. But I mean, yeah. I mean, they thought I said, on to play yeah. for the Bucks in, in later years, but it's just staggering. But then, of course, you've got like the New Orleans Saints. The very first play in their franchise history was a kick return for a touchdown, and it took us 31 years just so that every NFL footage could say, "Hey, Bucks have never returned a kick for a touchdown." Yeah, the Dolphins did that too. Uh, Joe Alper returned the opening kickoff in the first Dolphin game for a touchdown. I always remember J.K. McKay. I always kind of felt a little bad for him um, because he was the coach's son, John McKay. And he was he played for his dad at USC. And he was a quality wide receiver on a national championship team at USC. You know, he was Pat Hayden's favorite target. Uh, I believe he played for one year with the Cleveland Browns. And, you know, they left him, you know, available. Uh, so he came and played. And because John McKay was so acerbic and could be very, very sarcastic and cutting in his comments, I think John McKay not only had that nepotism hung around his neck, it was also easier for people to take out their frustration on the coach on him during practice. And so I don't think he gets enough credit for what he had to endure and then sadly, he gets injured. So he, after all those three years of just drudgery, he he's released. He he has to leave the team before the '79 season. So I always kind of felt bad for him, you know, almost like he's Fredo in a way. Well, J.K. of course came from L.A. like like Coach McKay did. Someone else who came from L.A. was a linebacker called Jimmy Psycho Sims. Now, only a 190-pound linebacker could have the nickname of Psycho. Now he was he played at USC. He he was rumored to have been living on the streets of LA before and after he became a Buccaneer. And one of the great things, he was signed just before the narrow 42-0 loss to Pittsburgh that was close until the opening kickoff. Now he didn't know any of the defensive signals. They just said to him, blitz on every play. So he did. He blitzed on every play. Yeah. And he's probably one of the reasons why, you know, that 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 amazing. Uh, defensive strategy caught the Steelers off guard and it easily probably kept them from getting to 56 points. Yeah. Do you know something? I mean, we'll talk about the, the coverage of those games, but I would love to see that game. Although I have been told by one or two people involved, no, you don't. What I love about the, the 76 team, like I said, they may have been boring to watch play, but there's so many fascinating stories and some of them are so bizarre that you have a hard time believing that they're true. But by the same token, you've uncovered that some of these stories are actually quite apocryphal and have no basis in truth whatsoever. Yeah. So one of them is, is NFL films did a documentary on the 76 Bucks and they went back and revisited it. And they were always telling the story about the player who allegedly went to the bathroom and never came back. <laughs> Now, this really did happen, but it was not the 76 Bucks. The player's name was Rico DeShaw, 
He was a tight end from Miami. And while the expansion bucks were losing every game, he was a senior catching 12 passes that year for the Hurricanes. It was the following year in 77. It really did happen, but it was not the expansion team. So unfortunately, NFL Films did get that one wrong. Well, another one they got wrong that you discovered was the linebacker Larry Ball. They made a big deal about him being the only person to ever play on the undefeated Dolphins and the winless Buccaneers. But our man Paul Stewart figured out that even the great Steve Sable can get things wrong. Yeah, there was a defensive tackle called Malty Moore who did the same thing. And in fact, Moore actually started the game, which Ball didn't. And before he passed, I, I did get to talk to Steve Sable, and we actually talked about one or two of these things. And he always said, if we do a second timeline revisit, we'll get you involved. So what do you think, Paul? Steve Spurrier was named MVP of the Buccaneers, and he made a great deal of after-dinner speaking money off of bragging about that, you know, he was the most valuable player on a winless team. I would almost argue the most valuable player that year should have been Dave Green, because Dave Green was a punter. We talked about Mira Roeder. Uh, there's also the infamous Pete Rejecki, who was too nervous to kick in front of Coach McKay. But Dave Green ended up having to do double duty as the punter and as a place kicker. So, and he also, according to Jack Harris, was one of the few people that would be interviewed after games because he always had a great game because he got to punt about nine to ten times per contest. So I, I would like to say that uh, in hindsight, maybe Dave Green should have been co-MVP of the 1976 Buccaneers. I've had dinner with Dave at Leroy's Hall of Fame event at One Buck Place in 2009. He, he actually said he couldn't decide whether to sit on the offensive table or the defensive table, but he came and sat on the offensive table and he was telling some great stories about that team. He's a really good guy. He's lived in Tampa ever since, very popular with the fans. A couple of other people who I got to know through this 76 team, Pat Toomey, who's become a renowned author, and many Buck fans will know the film Any Given Sunday, Pat wrote the original screenplay. He's got a cameo. He's the assistant coach next to Dick Butkus in one of the in one of the scenes. Great guy, and he's been a long supporter of Buck Power since the very first time I started the site. Another player was a running back called Manfred Moore, who sadly passed away now. Manfred had quite an amazing end to his 76 season. And he played 12, 13 games for the Bucks, was released. He was signed by the Oakland Raiders who went on to win the Super Bowl. So he never won a game in Tampa, but he walked away with the Super Bowl ring. That is just priceless. Yeah, that's clean living. I think that's a sign of clean living. He went on to uh, play a rugby league in Australia the following year before going back to run a business in LA. He was probably frustrated, you know, coming from SC, powerhouse. Now you can't win a game. Well, we didn't block him, but we made up for it by not tackling. So, Dennis, you've written a book about John McKay. You studied all those early years. Did he get it right or did he get it wrong with how he ran that expansion team? Oh, I've learned that, you know, two things can be true at the same time. So I'm going to say he got the personnel right, but I think he got his game strategy and his training camp regimen wrong. Uh, now, in defense, I know that Pat Toomey, um, or Pat Toomey, don't know why I decided to emphasize his last name that way. Uh, Pat Toomey in the um, NFL Films piece really ripped into McKay as being arrogant. And while I really grew to love McKay while researching the book, 
yeah, he could rub people the wrong way. But in defense of McKay, two-a-day practices was a standard thing in the NFL in the 1970s. But doing it for 10 consecutive weeks before they even started playing games, that was insane. Um, especially in Florida in July <laughs> uh, during the heat of heat of summer. So I think the Buccaneers could have won a game or two that first season if they just had fresh legs. The closest equivalent I can have to that is what Ray Perkins did in 87 when he did three-a-day practices. And the Buccaneers just wilted over the course of that season as well. Because the 76 Bucks were actually competitive in a handful of games. They should have beaten Seattle. They should have beaten Miami, really. Uh, so that's two games that you know they should have won. But once they get into the second half of the season, that's where you start to see a lot of the blowouts. They lose big at Oakland, big at Denver, big at Pittsburgh. They competed for about a half against New England in the finale, but then the Patriots just rolled over them in the second half of that game. So I would say in that, McKay got it wrong. But I think the 79 season validated his personnel strategy, also validated that his offense, as much as people love to make fun of it to this day, his offense could work in the NFL. Uh, it just needed the proper quarterback and it needed a very heavy running back, which the Buccaneers got. They had neither one of those in 76. Now, the Bucs are no longer the only winless team in NFL history because we've now got the 2008 Lions, the 2017 Browns. The 08 Lions were actually coached by a former Buccaneer assistant, Rod Marinelli. And to me, I was sad that another team went winless because it was a unique thing the Buccaneers had. Is that strange to think that way? No, I have to admit, I always found it to be one of an uplifting element of that team was that they actively cheered for other teams to win so that nobody had to go through uh, the brutal treatment that they did. I always like to juxtapose that with the Miami Dolphins. The undefeated Miami Dolphins to me, now granted, I, you know, I can't, to quote Eric Idle with uh, talking about writing Life of Brian, it's hard to take the piss out of Jesus. Hard to take the piss out of the 72 Dolphins. They were undefeated, black and white, but they're so arrogant and they wrap their identity up in that so tightly. The fact they celebrate when the final undefeated team loses always struck me as just arrogant and unpleasant. So I love the fact that the 76 Bucks actively cheered for the Lions and Browns not to get there. I thought that that was a very big thing of them to do. And it kind of makes me proud to be a Buccaneer fan in a way. But then again, all the pictures of Miami Dolphins winning Super Bowls were in black and white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you look back now, when they did the NFL Films documentary, it was always the winless Bucks were terrible. They lost every game. And, and Pat Tumay spoke to me, you know, emailed me recently and said, you know, now things have changed. You know, people look back now with a fondness. Do you think that the attitudes have changed in recent years towards those 76 bucks that people don't regard them as badly as they once did? Well, history has a great way of showing uh, some of the context that's missing at the time. When you're going through it, you know, there was no social media at the time. So I think what it is, is at that moment, because we truly lived in a networked environment, you only had three channels. There was no internet. You couldn't have this nice little narrow focus on, on one thing. 
because Johnny Carson made them a butt of jokes and more people watch The Tonight Show than watch anything on television now. It was easy to get caught up in the mocking of the Buccaneers. But thanks to, I think, websites like yours and people who specialize in football history, uh, not to toot my own horn, but you know, people who are passionate about the team like TJ Reeves, the fact that we can have these smaller groups dedicated to our passions means that there is more empathy and appreciation for them now than there was in real time. And we also saw that with the Browns and Lions. When the Browns and Lions went winless, yes, there were people who would mock them, you know, because I lived in Youngstown at the time and people had that great thing of, you know, Browns are going to Brown, but the level of national scorn on the Browns was non-existent. And, you know, I think that has a lot to do with the way media has changed. It's funny, when I first spoke to Pat Sumo 20 years ago, he said he didn't want to be reminded of the 76 bucks because I, you know, put the first screens of Buck Power up. And then about a month later, he came back to me and went, oh, I was wrong. He said he looked at all the pictures, saw the faces, and he reminded him, no, there were some good moments, you know, of, of people he got to know. And he'd reached out to two or three people. And he came back to me and said, no, I take back what I said. You're right to be doing this and keep doing it. And 20 years later, and 100 million hits later, I'm still doing it. Um, so we associate that Bucko Bruce logo and the orange colors with happier, well, maybe not happier, but more innocent, less ironic times in our lives. And I think that also plays a lot into it. Even though that first team was atrocious, they wore the orange and white. They had Bucko Bruce. And anytime I see Bucko Bruce, I just kind of smile a little bit. So I think that also plays something into it. You can read more about the expansion bugs on the special project I've done on buckpower.com. It took a lot of work. Every one of the near 150 players has their own page. We've tracked down all the details, everything about it. But Dennis, where can people hear about more of your work? Well, right now I have a I have a handful of books out. Um, you know, they can still find the K's men. I it is out of print. Uh, but they can still find McKay's men uh, through Amazon. Uh, Hugh Culverhouse and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, is still available. It has many stories about the original Buccaneers as well. I did branch out recently uh, with my biography of John Bassett, who used to own the Tampa Bay Bandits, who infamously outdrew the Buccaneers attendance-wise in the early 80s. And I am starting very soon a new job, a new chapter in my life that I'm very excited about at the Chick-fil-A College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta. So hopefully, if those of you who love Buccaneer football and also love college football, please come up and, and visit our museum. Um, I'm very excited about the chance to work with uh, the team there at the Hall of Fame. Well, please rate and review this podcast wherever you uh, get your uh, online subscriptions from. And if you do know any other Buccaneer fans who haven't been following Buck Power in its many forms, get them to do so. We've got a lot more coming out in the future. We've got the No Quarter Given podcast with Peter Blake and Jason Powers. And of course, we'll have lots of other things involving the Bucks sideline reporter and Tampa media legend TJ Reeves coming up. But for now, Dennis Crawford, thank you for being part of this uh, look back on the 76 Buccaneers. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have.